If you still have your hymn book in your hand, I invite you to turn to the back of it, to the Canons of Dort. It's uh, page 897. Or if you happen to have the forms book in your hand, it's page 259. Page 897, and they're going to open God's Word to Psalm 14, and then Romans chapter 3. The Canons of Dort, the first main point of doctrine, and if you uh, go to Article 1, God's right to condemn all people. Since all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the entire human race in sin and under the curse and to condemn them on account of their sin. As the apostle says, the whole world is liable to the condemnation of God, Romans 3. All have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6. Article 2, the manifestation of God's love. But this is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten son into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So please turn with me now in your Bibles to Psalm 14. We sang it a moment ago. I'd like to read it to you now. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now let's flip over to the New Testament, to the book of Romans, chapter 3, reading verses 9 through Twenty. You find that on page 1,735, 1,735. Romans 3, beginning at the ninth verse. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat 
is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So far, the reading of God's holy word. In our text for this afternoon, the Apostle Paul makes a rather unpopular assertion. There is none righteous, no, not one. For Romans 3, verses 9 through 18, we want to examine three things. First, sin has corrupted all people. Second, sin has corrupted vertical fellowship. Third, sin has corrupted horizontal fellowship. Who really wants to accept the words of the canons of Dort that all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and are deserving of eternal death? That sounds pretty radical, doesn't it? Several years ago, a Gallup poll in the United States revealed that the overwhelming majority of professing evangelicals indicated their agreement with the proposition that people are basically good. People are basically good. Mankind's basic goodness is a cardinal tenet of humanistic philosophy, but it has also pervaded modern American evangelicalism. Back in the fourth century, the church was embroiled in a fierce controversy. At the center of the controversy were two men, the Irish monk Pelagius and the famous Bishop of Hippo, Augustine. Pelagius denied the doctrine of original sin. He insisted that Adam's sin affected Adam and Adam alone. He denied that guilt or fallen corruption transmitted to Adam's descendants. He said that there is no inherited condition of corruption known as original sin. Pelagius said that all men are born free of any disposition to sin. He said that we're all born in the same moral condition as Adam enjoyed before the fall. Our will, said Pelagius, remains entirely free and is not predisposed or inclined to evil. Pelagius claimed that humanity was born without sin, free to obey or disobey the commandments of God. One author summarized the views of Pelagius with these words. When Adam fell... He fell alone. His sin was his alone, and the consequences his alone. His children, born as innocent as the first dawn over Eden, came forth from the womb of Eve with pure souls and the God-given ability to live lives fully pleasing to their Creator. 
They could choose obedience or they could follow the errant example of their father, Adam. There was nothing wicked in their nature to drag them toward the latter, end quote. Pelagius said that the only reason sin appears to be universal is because people give in to the evil example of others who have chosen to do wrong. Sin is only a matter of imitation. He claimed that it is possible for a person to live a sinless life. Grace is not necessary to reach moral perfection. Augustine who is sometimes referred to as the greatest theologian of the early church, Augustine vigorously opposed the views taught by Pelagius. He insisted that because of our fallen nature, grace is absolutely necessary. Augustine argued that sin is universal and that mankind is a mass of sin. He said that prior to the fall, man had the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. After the fall, we are able only to sin. We are unable to live without sinning. Augustine said that we are corrupt from the very womb. We do corrupt things because we are corrupt people. It is absolutely impossible to have victory over sin apart from the grace of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Augustine preached that none, no one, could believe or obey apart from God's gracious initiative and the enabling power of His Holy Spirit. Well, the theological war continued for quite a number of years until finally Pelagius was condemned at the Synod of Carthage in 418. He was condemned because his views seriously distorted the biblical view of the fall and the absolute need of divine grace. Brothers and sisters, it's not difficult to see why the views of Pelagius were and are appealing to so many. People are attracted to doctrines that bolster their egos. We like to believe that we are basically good. The doctrine of original sin is hard for the human race to swallow. It's not nice to believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind and that all people are born with a sinful nature. It's not appealing to believe that original sin is a corruption of the whole nature and a hereditary evil which affects even infants in their mother's womb. Who wants to accept the words of the Belgian Confession that original sin is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn the human race? Who wants to believe that sin always streams forth from this woeful source as water from a fountain, a contaminated spring? It's not a popular feel-good message. The opening words of the canons of Dort are not what the natural man wants to hear, right? All people have sinned in Adam, lie under the curse, and are deserving of eternal death. 
But congregation, it is vitally important that we come to terms with this biblical doctrine because if we don't understand it or if we don't believe it, then we will not be open to the remedy. If you go to the doctor because of headaches and the doctor does not tell you the truth about your cancerous brain tumor because he doesn't want to hurt you or scare you or be the bearer of bad news, how are you going to seek the proper treatment? If the doctor doesn't tell you the truth about your tumor while it's in its curable stage, you will go your merry way until it's too late. The doctor must tell you the truth about your condition even if it's an unpleasant message so that you can investigate the cure as soon as possible. We should be very thankful, congregation, that the book of Romans as well as the canons of Dort, not only present a devastating picture of the human race, but they also provide the remedy. They not only tell you about your desperately sinful condition, but they also tell you how you can be right with God and right with your fellow man. You might say that the bad news in the book of Romans, which is echoed in the canons of Dort, is good for you because it forces you to consider the only remedy, the perfect righteousness of Jesus, freely given to all who believe. Well, let's have a closer look then at the bad news. Look with me in your Bibles, please, to verse 9. Verse 9. Paul asks two questions. What then, or what shall we conclude then? Are we better than they? Now, there are differing interpretations on the meaning of we. Some commentators believe that Paul is speaking about his fellow Jews. Are we Jews better than they, Gentiles? That is a possible interpretation. However, the Apostle Paul has already stated in chapters 1 and 2 that Jews are not better than Gentiles. And so it is thought by others that we, there in verse 9, is referring to believers, Paul and the Christians in Rome, both Jew and Gentile. When understood in this way, the question would be, are we Christians by nature better than other people? Do we have a better basic nature than those who are condemned in chapters 1 and 2? However you interpret the word we, the meaning of the following verses does not really change, does it? Are we better than they? The immediate answer is what? Not at all. Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Greeks alike are all under sin. The point is that the entire human race, with no exceptions, is guilty before the Lord. Every human being is under sin. This is what Paul has been charging from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 8. Now, what does it mean to be under sin. What does it mean to be under sin? It is to be under its control, to be controlled by our sin nature. In these verses, Paul brings the whole human race before the tribunal of God and declares that without exception, 
we are guilty. Now, of course, in these verses, he was evaluating the human race apart from Jesus. This text does not have Jesus in view. He was sinless. He was never under the power and control of sin. But every other person, from Adam to the present, black and white, male and female, Asian and North American, all are in bondage, all are in bondage to the dominion of sin. The entire unredeemed world is under the power of the evil one and guilty before God's bar of justice. Do you believe that? All? All? In verses 10 through 18, Paul supported his argument with a string of Old Testament quotations. He quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from the prophecy of Isaiah. He also quotes from the book of Ecclesiastes. They are not all direct quotations word for word, but they are all accurate according to the sense of the texts. He begins with Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and Ecclesiastes 7. Please look with me to verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Is Paul suggesting that there is not a single person in the entire human race that is able to do things that are morally right? No, he's not saying that. There are people who show acts of kindness, love, and mercy. There are people who are generous and honest, who show concern for their fellow man. What Paul is saying is that there is not a single person who has ever lived whose innermost being could be characterized as righteous in the sight of God. Paul emphatically says, no, not one. The entire human race is unrighteous. From God's point of view, they don't come even remotely close to His standard of perfection. Brothers and sisters, isn't that precisely why we need Jesus Christ? Without righteousness, you cannot enter God's righteous presence. The only way that you can be seen as perfectly righteous in His sight is if the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you through faith in His name. God has provided a way for unrighteous sinners to be declared righteous through the imputed, transferred righteousness of Jesus. The whole point of the book of Romans, and the whole Bible for that matter, is that God can declare unrighteous sinners to be righteous when we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Look down below our text for a moment to verse 21. Just drop down to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Sin has corrupted both Jews 
and Greeks, all men. Therefore, we all have the same need. We need righteousness from God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the perfect, saving righteousness from God, which is acquired only by faith. Many years ago, a man asked the most important question that a sinner could ask. The man's name was Job. And this was his question. How can a man be righteous before God? How can a man be righteous before God? The Protestant reformers of the 16th century rediscovered the answer to that question as the Lord opened their understanding to the biblical doctrine of justification by faith. They came to realize that Christ alone was able to satisfy God's absolute standard. And we can only stand before God when we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. As the hymn writer said, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Through their study of the Word of God, the Reformers came to see that we are justified before God by grace alone, on account of the work of Christ alone, and this free justification becomes ours by faith alone. The Reformers strongly opposed the Roman Catholic teaching which said that God justifies believers in part on the basis of their own righteousness. Rome said that God justifies believers not solely upon the basis of the work and merits of Christ, which are granted and imputed to believers by grace, but partly on the basis of the work and merits of believers. They added works to faith as the grounds of justification. But the reformers said, no, no, and again, no. Justification is a free gift of God's grace. The righteousness by which we are justified is an alien and imputed righteousness. The believer's justification rests upon the righteousness of another, the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ. By means of his perfect obedience and fulfillment of all the requirements of the law, Christ met all the demands of righteousness on our behalf. The ground upon which we stand before God is his perfect righteousness imputed to us by faith. Congregation Jews and Greeks alike require this righteousness, for without it, there is no one righteous, not even one. So that's point number one. Sin has corrupted all people, universal corruption. The canons of Dort correctly state, Article 1, all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and are deserving of eternal death. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. Curse and eternal death. It's not a pleasant thought, is it? We move to point number two more briefly. Sin has corrupted vertical fellowship. Sin has corrupted vertical fellowship. Look with me to verse 11. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Then go down to verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What has Adam sinned unto the human race? It has totally ruined our relationship with our Creator. We don't understand Him. We don't seek Him. We don't fear Him. We don't stand in awe of Him. We need to realize that without Christ, the human race stands in rebellion against God. We don't love Him. Even though He is the most important and majestic person in the universe, we have no affection for Him. We do not reverence Him. We have no passion for His glory. We do not find our utmost joy in Him. There is none who seeks after God. The natural inclination of the unregenerate is to what? Flee from God. As Adam and Eve fled from his presence and tried to hide themselves from God's scrutiny, so their descendants are naturally inclined to flee from him. By nature, we have no desire for the king of the universe, and we treat him with disdain. Now, congregation, perhaps some of you are thinking to yourself, well, surely there are millions of people in the world who are seeking after God. I mean, why are there so many religions in the world? Why are there Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, and animists? Why do we find temples, religious shrines, and altars in every country of the world? Isn't it rather obvious that millions of people are diligently seeking after God? Brothers and sisters, Scripture makes it clear that no unregenerate person seeks after God. Yes, people are seeking happiness, peace, relief from guilt, and personal fulfillment, but they are not seeking the one true God. In fact, every false religious system is an attempt to escape the true God and to manufacture gods that suit us, gods of our own liking. Every man-made religion is another attempt to escape from the true God. It's not an attempt to find Him. The Bible teaches that we do not seek after Him, but rather, He graciously pursues us. We do not find Him, but we are found by Him. The search for God does not end in conversion. It begins at conversion. It is only the converted person who sincerely seeks after God. Congregation, if you are a Christian, it's not because you sought after Him. It's because He sought you. I love the words of that hymn, don't you? I sought the Lord. And afterward, I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found, was found of thee. You ran from him. But he pursued you. You fled from him, but he relentlessly went after you. If he had not pursued you, you would have been lost forever. 
Perhaps some of us in this assembly ran from God for a long time. Perhaps some of you recall the days very vividly when you sought fleshly pleasure, prosperity, and personal fulfillment. You lived your own life and did your own thing. Were it not for the one who found you, you would have continued in your foolishness till death and then eternal condemnation. Through the sin of Adam, our vertical fellowship has been horribly corrupted. And without divine enablement, we go through life trying to hide from God and to escape Him as a guilty man dodges a police officer. Yes, Scripture says that anyone who seeks Him with his heart will find Him. The Bible often admonishes people to seek after God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55, Jesus said, he who seeks finds. The Bible contains these exhortations to seek him. Yet it also teaches that we can only respond to those exhortations by divine initiative. The only person who truly seeks God is the person who has been sought by God. Brothers and sisters, doesn't that make your relationship with God so much more precious? Canada Dort, Article 1, correctly says that God would have done no injustice by leaving all people to perish and delivering them over to condemnation on account of their sin. God would have been perfectly just if He had condemned you and me and all people. But instead, instead of condemning the entire human race, he apprehends fleeing sinners whom he has chosen and stops them in their tracks and draws them to faith in his only begotten Son. Listen, if you're a child of God, it is his doing. He set his love on you. He took the first step to restore you. Of all the millions and millions of people who are trying to escape Him, He chose you and turned your heart toward Him. Of all the people in your community who are fleeing from Him on this Lord's Day, refusing to heed His call to worship, refusing to assemble with God's people, refusing to worship the King of the universe, of all the thousands in your community who are trying to escape God's scrutiny, the Lord has graciously set His love upon you. Upon you. He pursued you. Not because you are better than the rest of humanity. Verse 9 says, are we any better? Not at all. He found you not because you are intrinsically superior, but because of his own sovereign good pleasure. If God had not pursued you, perhaps you would be working today instead of worshiping. Perhaps you would be at the mall, at the theater, at the sports stadium, painting your house, improving your barn, or socializing with other spiritually empty God-evading sinners. 
if you are delighting in God this day, singing from your heart, finding joy in Him, worshiping as you hear the Word proclaimed, it is because He has found you. The vertical relationship that was corrupted by sin has been wonderfully restored in your life by sovereign grace. It is now the main business of your life to seek after God, the one who sought you first. We come then to point number three. These verses not only teach us that sin has corrupted all people, and sin has corrupted vertical fellowship, but they also teach us that sin has corrupted horizontal fellowship. Sin has corrupted horizontal fellowship. Being under sin, verse 9, means that our relationships with other people are not what they should be. In verses 13 and 14, the apostle describes how sin has corrupted our speech. Have a look with me, verse 13. Verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now notice how Paul mentions the throat, the tongue, the lips, and the mouth. Why does he mention them? Because that which comes from the mouth reveals the condition of the heart. If the throat is an open tomb, and if the tongue is deceitful, and if the lips and mouth are poisonous and blasphemous, then the heart is utterly corrupt and contrary to the will of God. The heart is rotten to the core. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He said, an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Apart from the Spirit's regenerating grace, the human heart is thoroughly corrupt. From a wicked heart comes wicked words. Their throat is an open tomb. Tombs, graves, are associated with death. The poison of asps or viper's venom is under their lips. Poison is also associated with death. Deceit, cursing, and bitterness all produce death. The human mouth was designed to produce life-giving words, words that exalt God and bless our fellow man. But since the fall, the mouth has become a reservoir of poison and death. From spiritually dead hearts come spiritually dead words. The human tongue has become a deadly weapon. Verses 13 and 14 are made up of three quotations from the Old Testament, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, and Psalm 10. They all describe how the words that we speak are used to harm others. The organs of speech that God gave us have become sharp weapons of destruction. Sometimes we harm our fellow man through words that are harsh and nasty, other times we may harm our fellow man through words that are smooth and flattering. Psalm 5 verse 9 says they flatter with their tongue. 
Sometimes words are spoken in the home that cause great damage. Words are spoken between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between friends and neighbors that are like a dagger to the heart. Poisonous and deadly words have destroyed many marriages, have broken up many friendships. They have caused international strife and provoked wars. They have set nation against nation, tribe against tribe, clan against clan, family against family, and yes, even church member against church member. Even professing Christians can speak words that cut, wound, and poison. How many churches have suffered great disunity and strife because of deadly, deceitful, poisonous, bitter words? Brother Bob has reamed out Brother Harold. Sister Sue has released her venom against Sister Jane. Congregation, how we need renewed hearts so that our tongues and mouths may begin to produce life and not death. How we need the heart-transforming, sanctifying power of the Spirit so that like our Savior Jesus Christ, we may use our organs of speech to bring life, health, and joy to others. Sinful words corrupt our horizontal fellowship, but by the power of grace, our redeemed tongues and mouths can begin to give life instead of death. But then in verses 15 through 17, Paul goes on to say that our horizontal fellowship is not only ruined by sinful words, but also by sinful conduct. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Being under sin, verse 9, means that we have a potentially murderous character. The unregenerate heart of the, the natural man has a destructive disposition. If you don't believe that, then just pick up a history book and start reading. The history of this world is a history of bloodshed, killing, and man destroying his fellow man to satisfy his ambition, greed, or desire for revenge. The history of this world is one of violence, destruction, and abuse, a story of pain and despair. Child abuse, wife abuse, brutality, and rape are common stories on the daily news. Men's feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. From Cain, who murdered his brother Abel in the field, right up to the present day, the human race has been guilty of unrighteous anger, wars, battles, and destruction. We leave behind us a trail of suffering and sorrow. Why has the Lord instituted human government? Why do we need a local police force? Why do we need an army? Because without these things, we descend into anarchy. God uses them to restrain evil in our world so that our feet cannot run so quickly to shed blood. 
Maybe some of you recall what happened in, in New Orleans when they were flooded following Hurricane Katrina. Do you remember that? There was looting, theft, rape, and even murders. When the restraints were temporarily taken away, the city descended into utter chaos. Feet were swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery marked their ways. The violence and anarchy in New Orleans provided, proved, sorry, proved the truth of verses 15 through 17. When God releases the rains ever so slightly, our feet are swift to shed blood. Congregation, if we are honest, we know that the human race has a terrible record when it comes to destruction and misery. How many millions have died under communist regimes? How many millions have died at the hands of the Nazis? And right here in North America, how many millions of babies have been murdered through abortion? Mothers and fathers allow doctors to kill their own beautiful infants made in God's image. The abortion industry in North America proves the truth of verses 15 through 17. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Paul is not suggesting that every human being is guilty of acts of brutality in exactly the same way or to the same degree. But he is saying that every human being in his natural condition in Adam has the seeds of hatred, revenge, and murder in his heart. Every person does not express extreme brutality, but every person has a potentially murderous character, a Mr. Hyde within. A Mr. Hyde within. If God were to release his restraining hand from this world, we would see utter chaos. People would take vengeance on every offense, and feet would be running in every direction to shed blood. If we back up to verse 12, if we back up to verse 12, we read, they have all turned aside they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Dear friends, apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, no human being has within himself either the, des the desire or the capacity to do what is truly good in the sight of God. What then do we need to restore both our vertical and horizontal fellowship? Since the wages of sin is death, what do we need? Article 2 of the Canons of Dort says, But this is how God showed his love. He sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What do we need? We need His Son. We need His Son. We also need the gift of faith to believe in Him. When the Lord shows you the truth about yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit, He enables you to repent, to cry out for mercy, to seek the pardoning grace of Jesus, and to receive the very righteousness of Christ as a free gift. 
He bore the punishment for your unrighteousness. He paid the penalty for all the vileness that was in your heart and the venom in your mouth. All the deceit, all the poison, all the cursing and bitterness, all the ruin and misery that filled your heart because of your union with Adam, the Lord Jesus paid the penalty as he suffered, bled, and died on the cross. As the Spirit enables you to trust the Savior, you receive the very righteousness of the perfect, sinless Son of God. Congregation, if we are truly ruined, as Paul states in these verses, then our salvation is due to nothing but His mercy and grace. We are saved from the curse and eternal death through the gracious work of our divine Savior, the Righteous One. How can you stand in the presence of a holy God? Only with the garments that He grants to you through faith in Jesus. God would have done no injustice by leaving us all to perish. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But in this, the love of God was manifested, that He sent His only begotten Son into the world. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. And you will not perish. You who deserve eternal death will receive eternal life. And in His everlasting kingdom, All the rottenness depicted in verses 10 through 18, all the rottenness will be no more. What a gift. What a blessing. What a Savior. Have you trusted Him? Let us pray. Lord, what we have just read certainly does not provide us with a pretty picture of our condition in Adam. In Him, and because of our union with Him, we are vile, we are wicked. Venom comes from our mouths, our feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in our way. We thank you for sending your only begotten Son to take our punishment, but also to live our life, that perfectly righteous life, so that not only is our guilt laid upon him, but that beautiful spotless robe is transferred to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing what we could not do, giving us that abundant life that we may stand before Almighty God without sin. 
with no stain, without spot or blemish. Lord, we pray that each and every person here this afternoon may recognize his own condition and that by your enabling grace, each and every one would flee for refuge to Jesus Christ. Lord, you would have done no injustice to leave us all in our sin and to condemn us eternally. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you that you did not do that. But you have come to provide the remedy through your beloved Son. So our God, we pray that you will work in each and every heart here so that we may turn from our sin and embrace the provision in Christ and receive the gift of everlasting life. Receive our praises as we conclude this service. Strengthen us in the week that is before us that we may live, Lord, as a grateful people, having been redeemed and now beginning by the work of your Spirit to live that transformed life Thank you for your tremendous, incomprehensible gift. We who by nature would run from you, we who would flee from you, Lord, you have apprehended us. You have stopped us in our tracks. You've drawn us to yourself. We can only give you all the glory and all the praise. Amen.